from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we spend time talking about perceptions of Islam in the West as we revisit a 2014 interview with Imam Faisal Abdul Raouf, the founder and chairman of the Cordoba Initiative, which is a multinational, multi-faith organization dedicated to improving relations between Islam and the West. Stay tuned. Hey friends, before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about a new podcast from my friend, the Reverend Kat Banakas. It's called The Holy Holy Podcast, and each episode, Kat takes this big question like dying or careers or how to be single and Christian, and she talks about it with experts from across the nation, sometimes from across the world, and then at the end of the show, she puts it to a three-person panel that includes a representative of the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith. It's always a fantastic conversation. I always learn something when I listen to it, and I just love the fact that she's doing it. So I hope that you'll take a look for the Holy Holy Podcast. You can find it through iTunes. You can find it at holyholypodcast.com. You can also find it through our website, csec.org. So that's the Holy Holy Podcast with the Reverend Kat Banakas. Give it a listen. I know. I know you're going to love it. Thanks. Okay, here we go with the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Imam Faisal Abdul Raouf. Imam Raouf is the founder of Cordoba Initiative, an independent, multi-faith, and multinational project that works with state and non-state actors to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West. From 1983 to 2009, he served as Imam of Masjid al-Farah, a mosque in New York City. In 1997, he founded the American Society for Muslim Advancement, or ASMA, the first Muslim organization committed to building bridges between Muslims and the American public by elevating the discourse on Islam through educational research, interfaith collaboration, culture, and the arts. Imam Rauf is a trustee of the Islamic Center of New York and is a vice chair on the board of the Interfaith Center of New York. He was listed as one of the top 100 global thinkers of 2010 by Foreign Policy magazine, and in April 2011, Time magazine named him among the 100 most influential people in the world. There are many strands of Islam, and so when we start out by saying that you are an imam in the Sufi Muslim tradition, what should this mean to our listeners? Well, first of all, let me take issue with that. I mean, uh, Muslims would disagree with the fact that there are many strands of Islam from a a creedal point of view. Uh, Islam is very specific in terms of what we call the five pillars of faith and the five articles of creed. So there isn't any room for any difference on those issues. All Muslims, whether you call them Shia or Sunni, whether they are of the Sufi tradition or otherwise, uh, share these same principles, which are namely the belief in God, the one God, belief in the angels, belief belief in the prophets, belief in the scriptures, and belief in human responsibility 
which we shall be held responsible for on a day of judgment or a day of accounting. Uh, and then the five items of worship, the declaration of faith, that God is one and that Muhammad is his final prophet, the uh, the five-time daily prayers, the, the uh, fasting of the month of Ramadan, giving of charity and the pilgrimage. So Muslims all over the world uh, share these uh, both creed and acts of worship. So on that, we're all united. Uh, having said that, there have been issues or differences of opinion between different groups of Muslims on certain issues, some of which are of a political nature, such as who should be the successor to the Prophet in terms of ruling the community, uh, and that is where the Sunni-Shia split uh, occurred. The, the Sufi tradition is that tradition which uh, emphasizes spirituality and what you might call in Western faith traditions the mystical path, and that is the attempt to actually help the individual come to a personal experience of the divine. And that's what the Sufi tradition is about. So if I'm hearing you correctly, um, I started out with sort of a, an er- erroneous premise, and that is that that there were sort of multiple interpretations of Islam. And so you have told me that there's unity around these these five central pillars. But given that there's no room for difference around the five central pillars, the emphasis that we can take about Sufism is that it, it's the it's the sort of more mystical and spiritual strand of Islam. Have I heard you correctly? Correct. Okay. Now, would you characterize this this mystical tradition as a majority tradition within Islam, or what is the relationship between this mystical tradition and, and you mentioned Sunni and Shia also as types of traditions? Well, as the Sunni-Shia split really is a political split. Mm. Uh, it began that way, and while people consider themselves Sunni or Shia, it developed into some slight differences of, in terms of juristic interpretation, which is, has existed even within the Sunni tradition. Different scholars gave some different interpretations to relatively minor issues. Uh, you like, you know, whether you put your hands on the side or when you pray or you cross them over your, uh, you know, over your chest. Very minor issues of uh, differences in, in detail of acts of worship. The, uh, the Shia, for example, break their fast about 20 minutes later than we do the Sunnis, the ending of the fast of Ramadan. But apart from minor differences like that, we, we share one Quran, we share one creed, we share one set of acts of worship, uh, and the uh, the differences were more historical, which have continued in terms of sectarian differences. But from a purely religious point of view, the differences are not as substantial as, let's say, differences between Catholicism and Protestantism, where there is more differences that manifest at the religious level, such as the role of the clergy and so forth. Uh, we don't have clergy in Islam, so we don't have that particular issue. The spiritual point of view is something which exists across the board. There are Sunnis and Shias who are Sufis, and Sufism is a little bit analogous, not exactly the same, but analogous to the different, let's say, groups of monks in, in, in Christianity, of the Dominicans, of the Franciscans, all of whom, let's say, may be Catholic, but, uh, you know, different uh, different spiritual individuals or different individuals who founded these brotherhoods of faith and community to to focus on deepening their their commitment to faith and commitment to sacrifice and commitment to contributing to the community. So analogously, you have had different charismatic individuals throughout Islamic history who founded such uh, schools of Sufism, as you might call them. All of them, we believe, flow from the same tradition, and their, their intent is the same, which is to help people 
personal, greater sense of, of closeness to God, and they have created their own committees accordingly. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2014 interview with Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. He's worked with the State Department on issues of Muslim and American relations. He's an internationally known author and speaker, and he's the founder of the Cordoba Initiative in New York City. His most recent book is Moving the Mountain, Beyond Ground Zero to a New Vision of Islam in America, published in 2012. That clarification is very helpful, and I especially appreciate the analogy that you made to the different orders within Catholicism and their different emphases. And so I want to get at this this question of, of unity and multiplicity within Islam from a slightly different direction. A, a word that Edward Said came up with, the notion of Orientalism, the notion that uh, Westerners have looked to Islam and to the East as a sort of a monolithic structure, a simple and single adversary, or what we might call a big other to the West. It's obviously much more complex than that. But how could how can we as Westerners uh, become more educated to the fact that that there is this multiplicity of cultures and traditions within this unity of Islam? Well, like you just said, if you look at if you look at your own tradition of Christianity, uh, you will see that multiplicity within the unity, and and you 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 know the differences. You know that if you're if within the Catholic space, you have. You have the tradition, you have the Pope, you have the Catholic churches, then you have the orders, you know, whether it's Jesuits, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, etc., uh, within that particular space. Uh, and the same has happened in other uh, Christian uh, faith traditions as well, within the Protestant church and the other churches. You do have uh, monastic orders that, uh, that have uh, occurred. Uh, and um, so that, that's one way to look at it. And, and traditionally... Muslims didn't think of themselves as Muslims. I mean, yeah, we are Muslims, but we didn't look at ourselves that way. It's actually the West that has made us look at ourselves through the prism of Islam and has forced us to actually use that uh, that name and that nomenclature. In fact, one of the themes that I very often give in my lectures is that until a couple of, say, 150 years ago or so, our ancestors didn't think of themselves as Muslims in the way we think today. But that's one of the one of the byproducts of uh, of Orientalism, as uh, as you point out. So when you speak and and say that that what we now as as Westerners look to and consider Muslims, that that's a relatively recent artifact of the last hundred and fifty or two hundred years. How how would a person from that culture have regarded themselves? Would they simply have said, "I'm simply a servant of God," or would they have would they have eschewed all labels altogether? Or I, I guess I come from a from a tradition and a history and a culture where labeling is so important that I kind of want to to find out more about about this this existence beyond the label of Muslim that you mentioned. Well, let, let me give you a, a friend of mine who is a uh, who is Indonesian. Say, you know, we're Muslims, but you know, we're Muslims. We practice our faith of Islam, but we don't we don't think of ourselves as Muslims. We think of ourselves as, oh, Javanese or from Sumatra or from Bali or from whatever, and we happen to be Muslim. But we don't, for example, like let's say um, many Americans are Christians, but do you do you consider it part of your fundamental identity? Do you say, I'm a Christian, or do people think of themselves as, I'm a New Yorker, I'm from Texas? Yeah, they may go to church and all, but is it part of their label that they use to label themselves as? You know what I mean? I do. That's very helpful because I think 
when we and and later in the conversation, I'd like to talk about the distinctions that you and others are making between a sort of radical fundamentalist sects within all of these traditions and the more mainline or moderate sects. And I think part of that comes down to exactly what you're saying. The people the people that now do seem to identify strongly as I'm not just from Texas, but I'm a Christian from Texas. I'm not just uh, from Kabul, but I'm a Muslim from Kabul. Um, that seems to maybe be a, a way into understanding this distinction. And we, we can talk about it now or we can we can wait and, and bring it in in the conversation. But this distinction that you and others have made between, I guess, what we might call moderate Christianity, moderate Islam, and radical Christianity, radical Islam, the, the radical faiths. Yeah, but I, I was talking about the issue of identity. Identity is something which we we uh, or labeling is something which we play an active role in shaping. I mean, for example, when you say uh, when you if I were to ask David, "Who are you? What are you?" You say, "Well, I'm a radio interview or or some says I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor." I mean that that self definition ha- it comes about from something that you do, but not everything that you do. I mean, we all drive, but we don't think of ourselves as drivers. Mm. Okay, that's not part of our self-identity. Uh, we we cook, but we don't think of ourselves as cooks. <laughs> okay, what I'm saying is that we do we do things that that we do them and we enjoy and they're very important in our lives, but we don't make it part of our identity necessarily. So the label that we choose to define ourselves by is a chosen act. It's something that you do individually and also collectively. So, for example, the, the, exa- the other example I give to people within my tradition is that at the time of the Prophet, people did not label themselves as Muslims. They labeled themselves as believers. The Quran addresses them as believers. And in you know the, every commandment that God makes in the Quran to the followers of the Prophet says, Oh, you have believed. Oh, Prophet, tell the believers. And even after the death of the Prophet, the first uh, caliphs were called commanders of the believers or of the faithful. Um, it is, wasn't until later that, that, that they began to label themselves as Muslims. Yes, they were Muslims, but they didn't label themselves as, as such. So today, for example, when I tell people from in our tradition, I said, are you believers? They said, of course we're believers. But you don't think, you don't label yourselves as believers. We don't say we are Mu'minun. We say we are Muslim, not Mu'min. So the, the label is is is, the, is what I'm talking about right now, and, and that doesn't mean that you don't do or don't practice that, but you don't use that as your label, or what do you use as your label? But having said that, the choice of labeling actually plays a role on how you see yourself. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're listening back to a 2014 interview with Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. We'll be back in a moment. Hello. David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself, and so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. 
we would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, so that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to advertisecast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Imam Rauf is an internationally recognized voice in multi-faith and multinational efforts to improve understanding and relations between America and the Muslim world. His most recent book is Moving the Mountain, Beyond Ground Zero to a New Vision of Islam in America, published in 2012. Well, let's stay for a moment with this notion of the label, because it sounds as if the ability to pick up and choose a particular label is partly a communal act, it's partly an individual act, but in the process of making that choice about what labels will be the kind of main identifiers of our personality, that can shape then sort of the the way in which we're both perceived by ourselves and perceived by the world. I want to make sure that I'm hearing that correctly. Absolutely, and these things have shifted and they've had profound impact. And in what in what way has that shift have you seen that shift occurring, say, either in the in the last fifty years or maybe even the last ten years since two thousand one? I trace it a, a bit a bit longer than mm. that. I mean the, the, the focus on defining ourselves as Muslims and creating Islamic states and Islamic movements. The idea of uh, having an Islamic state and Islamic political parties and I have the Islamic Republic of Iran or Afghanistan or whatever, these are ways of labeling that, that are relatively recent in our history. And the notion that this is something which harkens back to the deepest core of our tradition is a myth. And this comes to many people both as a surprise and to many people as a relief. And so if we were to speak then of, of what you consider to be the substance of faith, can this, this may be too big a question, can you concretize that a little bit for our listeners? What, what to you is the key substance of faith? The key substance of faith is the content of your faith, your, your belief in God, your belief in the, the, the nature of the cosmos, uh, the, your belief that, uh, that we are created by God as responsible human beings, or responsible to the Creator for both our faith in Him and our adoration of the Creator, as well as discharging our responsibilities to, uh, to creation, both to other fellow human beings, and to the rest of creation, the animal kingdom, to be to be good stewards of the earth, uh, to love God and love neighbor. This is the content of faith. And God has made this particular set of commandments identical to all of his prophets and messengers. So all of the prophets are really part of one tradition, the divine tradition, the belief in God tradition. But to, to divide ourselves amongst ourselves, I mean, Christians and Jews, for example, both recognize the Old and Old Testament as as shed, and all of the prophets are their prophets. Can you say Daniel was a Jewish prophet or a Christian prophet? I see what you mean. And so it seems like what you're saying is that there is a, a common thread that we can find in all of these major traditions, whether we're talking about Muslim or or Jewish or 
or Christian, and I, I'm betting that probably you would say these go beyond the Abrahamic traditions to include probably also the Buddha and Sikhism and, and other sorts as well, that what we find there are these common nuggets of wisdom about, as you said, care for creation, care for each right. other. And right. and and for you, that's that's really the touchstone, the, the content of faith that we should be focusing on, not the labels that divide us. Have I heard you correctly? Absolutely. I mean, the Quran is, it says just that, just that. It says that God says that he has sent a prophet to every community all over the world, and the message is the same. And therefore, we tend to think of our separate religions as, I used to, I call it like somewhat, not humorously intended to be that way, but as Muhammad Incorporated and Jesus Inc. and Moses Inc. and Buddha Inc., it's really about God Inc. with all Muhammad and Jesus and Moses and Buddha as regional managers of the same message of the same one religion, the same the same religion with a small R or capital R. And I mean, Jesus didn't come to, to start a separate religion. He basically reiterated the commandments of of Moses, and he saw himself and even his followers, his companions, saw themselves as part of the same. Tradition. It wasn't until later on, you know, Paul, St. Paul, broke off and made it a separate religious tradition. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Imam Rauf is an internationally recognized voice in multi faith and multinational efforts to improve understanding and relations between America and the Muslim world. His most recent book is Moving the Mountain. Beyond Ground Zero to a New Vision of Islam in America, published in 2012. So I'm hearing very clearly in what you're saying that for you, the key content of faith is is a is a very general set of claims, claims about creation, claims about the, the nature of the human being, claims about how we should treat one another, and that these are the sort of God incorporated, and then we have the, the kind of regional managers in, in your model. But... Religion also has a very important place for particularity, the distinct differences between various types of Protestantism, the ver- the distinctions between Sunni and Shia Islam. You mentioned the difference between, you know, the 20 minutes of breaking the fast at Ramadan. Is there a place for these particularities or or would you would you call us to dispense with these particularities altogether? I, I think there is a place for these particularities because people interpret certain commandments different. It's like saying in, in the United States, when you have a contract, say this contract will be guided by the laws of New York or by the laws of uh, California. And now it doesn't mean that New York law and California law are fundamentally at odds. They're all constitutional. They're all part of the same U.S. law. But there's a recognition within the interpretation of law that there can be variations even within a particular, within a one particular law. And that's exactly what has happened. There have been variations in time and, and in, in place uh, because of the specifics uh, of, those, of those differences of time and place. That's perfectly all right. But that doesn't take away from the, the, uh, the issues of justice, which are universal, uh, the issues of equality, which are universal. The, the big picture issues are still the same. And the objectives are still the same. So the objective of the fast is still the same. So whether you fast 20 minutes longer or 20 minutes longer... Imam Rauf, when you participate in public policy discussions, you do so as a very visible person of faith. However, the arena of public policy in America and probably internationally is oftentimes very secular. 
How has your visible faith identity affected the tenor of these discussions? Well, I think I've had a, an influence upon the discourse. I think uh, since 9-11 and uh, especially and where I have shared with uh, people like Madeleine Albright in, in various spaces such as in Aspen, the fact that, you know, you're dealing, if the United States intends to deal with countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Pakistan, and the list goes on, without understanding the role of religion in Islam, in particular in those societies, then our foreign policy will be incomplete in terms of understanding of the issues and the vectors which act upon that. Again, another example is, let's say, if you are trying to deal with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and trying to to, uh, create peace in that region. If we do not understand the role and importance of religion, to those communities and how religious arguments lie at the core of many of their claims, then we will not have a complete, we'll not be playing with a complete set of cards. Uh, and I think that has had a profound influence upon the way people today think. I mean, uh, I was just in an event yesterday in Washington, D.C., where the State Department uh, was drawing upon the uh, and appealing to the uh, faith communities in this country to see what it could do to, uh, to help advance the administration's efforts towards establishing, advancing peace, in the, particularly in the Holy Land. I think there's a greater understanding today and a willingness to recognize the role of religion, and the State Department has now ambassadors for freedom of religion. It has a, uh, an ambassador to the Organization of Islamic Conference, or cooperations they now call themselves. The, uh, there's a recognition that when we deal with, uh, with, with the region, other regions of the world, we have to understand their mindsets and the uh, the issues that are important to them. And there's no doubt that in dealing with the 1.5 billion Muslims in uh, over 50 countries around the world, that we have to understand the role of religion in many of them. So in American public policy discourse, oftentimes there's been this model of we take off the coat of belief and underneath is the real secular person. But what I'm hearing you saying is that the State Department seems to have now a different model that it's that it's beginning to adopt, the sense that when it is dealing with, with these different cultures, when it's dealing with these different nations, the recognition that maybe uh, the dispensement of of belief is not the ideal and and a purely secular discourse is not ideal. You, your, your analogy of mathematics of not having the full set of variables – so there's, a, if I'm hearing you correctly, there's an inclusion of religion and the religious voice in public policy discussions, and you've been at this for a long time. Is is this is this a growing phenomenon in public policy discussions that uh, that the inclusion of the religious voices become more more important and more central? Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure that uh, players involved necessarily understand everything of what they're supposed to be doing, but I think there's a greater recognition that they have to at least recognize the role of religion. And they are getting people who are supposedly religious people or people who know or who understand uh, the faith tradition to help them in terms of shaping their policies. Well, I'd like to stay with this for just a moment and, and ask a question that's slightly more personal in nature. As you've been in these various public policy discussions, have you ever encountered a moment where you felt pressured in some way to become less religious in your self-presentation? Or alternately, have there been situations where it was clear that folks in the room were encouraging you to be more religious than perhaps you were comfortable being in your self-presentation? I don't think 
the way you frame the question really applies. Okay. I mean, I, I don't think there is any pressure to be either more or less religious. What what has occurred is the because I tend to speak about I tend to speak about these issues from a what I call a scientific point of view. It's like saying, hey, if you're acting upon these, I mean, just as you're looking at from a mathematical or physics engineering point of view, you look at the forces. If you want to, you know, build a bridge or you want to do something, you have to understand all the forces that are acting in, the, in that particular given space. So it's about looking at it from that point of view and saying, look, if you want to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if you want to, if you want to look at the Syrian conflict, all right, there are uh, or, or Lebanon. There are different faith groups. There is Hezbollah, which is Shia. There is. There is the Assad regime, which is Alawid, which is related to the kind of a branch of the Shia. There's a Sunni majority, and these are factors on the ground that 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 have political manifestations within that given space. So, if you want to act in that space, you have to be. You can't be colorblind, so to speak, to the different colors which are actually people identify with. So, you know, you, you, if you want to be an actor in the Syrian space, you have to understand the, the relationships between the different Shia groups, different Sunni groups, and how those are playing a role in the unfolding of the political realities. So if you're going to be a player in that space, the more you understand those factors, the more you can, you can shape your actions in a way that that will de- achieve the desired outcome, rather than if you just were not even aware of those things, saying, hey, "Listen, because we are totally secular, we can't even allow ourselves to even see those those realities." Then you know you are really less capable of of conducting a, a, a policy which will achieve anything. That kind of a discourse that I engage in, and when I say people say, "Oh yes, of course," and once they see that, then they want to. They want to be able to to express that kind of understanding in an intelligent way. It has no impact upon my religiosity as such, either way. You've given me something that I'd like to sort of follow up on for just a moment. You you mentioned the language of science and physics, and I know that one of your, your early degrees was in physics. Do I have that correct? Correct. So when you think of yourself as a person of religious faith, I'm going to assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you don't see a disunity between the language of physics and the explanations of the physical worlds, uh, the physical world that science in, engages in, and the language of religion as a descriptor of the world. Do you see those as two separate spheres, or do you see them as, as more unified? I see them as far more unified, because mm-hmm. within our tradition, we have never seen that split. That, and I, I think that that's very that's very helpful to to sort of in tying this together uh, when you when we talked earlier about uh, the Sufi tradition being a, a more mystical strand within Islam for Western ears it's easy to think that that would be an anti scientific strand therefore but what I'm hearing now in the conversation is know that what it is is it it's it's tying together this this uh, this unified description the spiritual the unseen world the uh, the seen world the physical world. What I'm hearing you saying is that within the Islamic tradition, these are seen as a as a unity, and the description of that unity can be helpful in terms of understanding what the Western eyes want to see as a secular religious split. You don't see as a split. No, we don't. We we do recognize within our Islamic tradition the differentiation between the 
you might say, to use the, the language of the cross, the vertical dimension, the horizontal dimension. And we do recognize that there are different dimensionalities to existence, but we don't see them as we, we see them as part of part of an part of the universe. Imam Rauf, you've always been involved in international relationship and coalition building, both for your own organizations and on behalf of the State Department. I'm wondering, over the past decade, particularly since September 11th, 2001, how has the focus of that work changed? I think I did more of it after 2001, but uh, none of it after 2010. Interesting. Why, why none after 2010? Well, 2010 was when the so-called Ground Zero mass controversy broke out, mm. and uh, and uh, somehow at that point, uh, I think my life went into a different orbit. Although the uh, the work has become even more more important and more intense in a way, but it certainly uh, has been something which I do at a different level now. Well, you mentioned what has been commonly called the Ground Zero Mosque. It's also referred to as, at various times, Park 51, Cordoba House. I understand from my research of that that your intention with that project, and correct me if I'm wrong, was to create a space of dialogue and a space of, of interaction between cultures. You were not meaning it as a, as a confrontation to the West. So the reaction, it became very politicized, of course, and, and as you mentioned in 2010, became a real, a real lightning rod, particularly for certain news networks here in, uh, in America. Looking back now, moving forward from that, as our listeners are listening to this, what could our listeners do positively to become better informed and to become better voices in the public sphere to help to counter those kind of polarizing moments of public discourse? It's a great question, David. Uh, I think, first of all, get to know a Muslim. I mean, that's the most important thing. Uh, I believe that having friends with people who identify with different faith traditions is the best way to erase any kind of myths, especially dangerous myths or negative myths that one may have. It's even more valuable than reading and studying about that faith tradition, although I don't discount the value of that at all. But I think more transformative is having friends. I mean, I didn't have Jewish friends until I came to America because I grew up in Malaysia and Egypt where at the time that I was growing up, there were hardly any Jews there. You know, getting to know Jews, getting to have friends, developing personal friendships, and deep personal friendships and attachments of love and affection, these uh, bridge the gap between the faith communities much more effectively than anything else. And I think that's been proven by, you know, I write in my previous book, the one before the one you just mentioned, Moving the Mountain, of an important Indian sociologist who studied conflicts between Muslims and Hindus in India and found that it did not happen in places where Indians, uh, uh, Muslims and Hindus specific types of relationships with each other, uh, where they were friends, where they were colleagues, where they were professional colleagues. Um, and uh, even though the uh, demographics were similar to other cities where violence occurred, but in the cities where violence occurred, those relationships were absent. So to me, the most important thing is those personal relationships. This is Things Not Seen, and we're listening back to a 2014 interview with Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. He's an internationally recognized figure in Muslim-American relations. He's worked as a consultant for the State Department, and he is the founder of the Cordoba Initiative in New York City. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, Dave Dalt here. 
Earlier in the show, I talked about podcast monetization through advertising. But let's say that you, as a listener, don't have anything to sell right now, but you still want to support Things Not Seen. We can make that happen. Here's how it works. You could go to our thingsnotseenradio.com website or csec.org and make a one-time donation. It would be tax-deductible, and that would be wonderful. But you can also support us on an ongoing basis through a platform called Patreon. Now, here's how that works. You set the amount, $1, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever an episode of Things Not Seen is worth to you. And every time that we release a new episode, you would be charged on your credit card for that amount. You set it. You set how long you do it. It's completely up to you, but it really would help us. So please go to our website or go to patreon.com and set it up. And we thank you always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Imam Faisal Abdul Raouf. Imam Raouf is an internationally recognized voice in multi-faith and multinational efforts to improve understanding and relations between America and the Muslim world. His most recent book is Moving the Mountain, Beyond Ground Zero to a New Vision of Islam in America, published in 2012. I want to stick with this for a moment because I think you've given us something very powerful in this conversation. So when we look at the last uh, four years in America, American political discourse is is completely divided, broken, very, very polarized. And what you just said was if you want to be a listener who can help to contribute to the betterment of public discourse about about Muslim-American relations, get to know a Muslim person. And I, okay. I think I think that we can expand that then to say if our listeners would like the public policy discourse generally in America to improve, maybe beginning to forge relations with people of different political bent than your own might be a, a way forward as well. Am I, am I hearing that generalization correctly? Absolutely, because as we know very well, uh, it's the moderates who create, I mean, even in Congress, for example, right, it's not the extremists who pass laws. It's the moderate, the, mod, the middle. The, the, it's always the it, government occurs in the middle, where the moderate Republicans and the moderate Democrats get together and they they craft legislation. Extremism is not how a society moves. A society moves by the the eighty percent that is in the middle of the bell curve. It's coming to the middle where everything is, and that's why within all our faith traditions, the perfect, the perfected path is not the path of extremism. It's the path of moderation, the path of the middle, that where, that where things are perfectly in balance and in harmony. That's considered the perfected human being, in fact. You mentioned a moment ago the, the controversy around Park 51, Cordoba House, the Ground Zero Mosque. I think that for a lot of people who may be listening to this program, that may unfortunately be the only way that they know you or have heard of you. Let's correct that. What do you see as the positive points of the work that you're doing that our listeners might not know about, but they should? One of the major projects that I have is the project of defining ourselves as American Muslims. There is a general narrative which every faith community has undergone as it has immigrated to the United States. First, they are, whether they're Catholics in America, from Ireland, from Poland, from Italy, whether they are Jews from Eastern Europe, even Protestants from various parts of Europe. But when they come to America, they create an American church, an American Catholic 
church, the American Catholic identity, an American faith identity, American Judaism uh, evolved uh, in the same way. So when you could consider the conservative reform and uh, reconstructionist branches of Judaism, these are peculiarly American phenomena. And my contention is that we too have to evolve ourselves from being immigrant Muslims, which is dominantly the case and has been the case through most of my 50 years of living in this country now, to to evolving ourselves to being American Muslims, rooted in America, having American institutions. I mean, our religions, our religious institutions have to be Americanized in, in many ways. And this is the... This is the value of and the the um, purpose of the Cordoba House project, uh, in part, which is to to give it meaning in terms of of how we look and how we dress and how we the architecture of our mosques uh, to our laws and how we integrate our laws with American laws and going on and so on and so forth down the line, because when that happens then we are seen as part of America and accepted as part of the American religious fabric. Our guest today has been Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Imam Rauf is the founder of Cordoba Initiative, an independent, multi-faith, and multinational project that works with state and non-state actors to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West. Imam Rauf is a trustee of the Islamic Center of New York and is a vice chair on the board of the Interfaith Center of New York. He was listed as one of the top 100 global thinkers of 2010 by Foreign Policy magazine, and in April 2011, Time magazine named him among the 100 most influential people in the world. What continues to give you hope? What keeps your work energized and moving forward as you look at the, the current landscape? First of all, that's part, what I'm doing is part of our own tradition, and part of the religious tradition as such. And in fact, if you look at the history of Islam as it evolved or as it developed in different countries. You look at Christianity, we went from Palestine to, to Greece, to Rome, to England. And, you know, you had the Anglican Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Catholic Church. So history gives me hope. And also what has happened in this country gives me hope. And also America. America has always been the land of hope. America in particular has been one of the greatest experiments and most important experiments in human history, not only in um, in developing a system of governance, uh, as Abraham Lincoln said when he, in his famous Gettysburg Address, when he, he said that four score and ten years ago when our ancestors came to develop a, uh, a republic dedicated to the proposition that all men were equal. And, and at that time was still a proposition. I mean, his battle of the freedom of slaves was part of the struggle to get what, he, what they called in the attempt to create a more perfect union. And to me, that, that if I look at how much our country has evolved since then and how it continues to evolve and who we are continuing to become as Americans, 200 years ago, being American predominantly meant being white, Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking, Protestant. And look at how it has expanded to being people of all faiths. Look at how we have advanced, uh, you know, civil rights and gone back and recognized things that we did that were wrong in our own history. 
America has been dedicated to a fantastic proposition of the equality of all of humankind. And we're becoming increasingly that kind of, that kind of a country, that kind of a nation. The world looks to America because America is, is that country where the, the, the aspiration of, of human beings to reach that kind of Edenic perfection uh, is something that we are waging the struggle for and where we are hopeful that we actually can attain it. Because our, our republic is founded on principles that acknowledge God and acknowledge the, 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 the oneness of all human beings and acknowledges the fact that these rights are intrinsic to every human being, regardless of your ethnic skin coloring, whatever background you are, that these rights are, you know, inalienable to us as human beings. So this is what gives me hope. Imam Rauf, I have learned a great deal from our conversation today, and I, I thank you very much for being with us. Oh, that's the nicest thing that anyone can tell me. Thank you so much, David. Our guest today has been Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Imam Rauf is the founder of Cordoba Initiative, an independent, multi-faith, and multinational project that works with state and non-state actors to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West. Imam Rauf is a trustee at the Islamic Center of New York and is a vice chair on the board of the Interfaith Center of New York. He was listed as one of the top 100 global thinkers of 2010 by Foreign Policy Magazine, and in April 2011, Time Magazine named him among the 100 most influential people in the world. Since we recorded our interview in 2014, Imam Rauf has come out with a new book called Defining Islamic Statehood, Measuring and Indexing Contemporary Muslim States, published by Paul Grave Macmillan. It's an in-depth analysis of the modern Islamic states, measuring how the majority Muslim nations meet the definition of an Islamic state, and was developed over seven years of dialogue with Sunni and Shia scholars. You can find out more about it at the website cordobainitiative.org, Cordoba spelled C-O-R-D-O-B-A. I'm very happy to announce that recently, Things Not Seen received an award from the Religion News Association. So I had the pleasure of going to Silver Spring, Maryland, to a wonderful conference where I had the chance to pick up the award. We won second place for excellence in uh, radio and podcasting. So I want to thank everyone who helped make that possible here at the Things Not Seen staff and also to the people at the Religion News Association for recognizing the work that we've done. A funny thing happened after we received the award. A friend tweeted us to congratulate us, but instead of tweeting to the Things Not Seen Twitter site, Not Seen Radio, they tweeted to the Things Unseen Radio site. Now, these two programs are not the same program, although we have known about and we are fans of Things Unseen. They're produced by a group of veteran BBC broadcasters who now work with the CTVC radio team. They're headed by Christine Pommert, and they explore what's beyond the material, visible world, doing so through an unseen medium, audio podcasts. They're here to grapple with a spiritual climate that no longer fits into ordinary patterns. 
Things Unseen examines what's most intriguing in this fragmented spiritual landscape, phenomena on the boundaries of religious experience, crossover and unusual faith perspectives, the ethics of the digital age, and insights into the private spirituality of public individuals. Now, you got to admit, this sounds like it's right up our alley. And so we reached out years ago to Things Unseen and created a sort of informal partnership. And so every once in a while, we get the chance to air a piece that they've done, and they do the same for us. We're happy to help support the wonderful work that they're doing. And so today, I'm happy to end the show with a short piece in a series that they've been doing called Faith by Numbers. This particular piece is called The Invention of Zero and features the Hindu teacher Jay Lakhani, who's fascinated by the concept of nothing. He has a background in math and physics, and he traces the 7th century roots of the idea of zero as a placeholder in counting systems, enabling complex calculations to be performed. He then explores Hindu stories about the origins of the universe, when something came from nothing. With theologians tending to invoke God at the point of creation, Jay asks, what caused the Big Bang, and finds a surprising answer. So here's Jay Lakani with The Invention of Zero from our friends across the pond at the Things Unseen podcast. My name is Jay Lakani, and in Faith by Numbers, we are going to talk about zero from the Hindu tradition. You see, I teach Hinduism at Eton College, and my background is actually not religion, but it is theoretical physics. So I come from a strongly mathematical background, so I enjoy talking about numbers. All civilization were struggling to articulate the number zero, something that doesn't exist. So how do you articulate, or how do you kind of give an icon or, or, or a symbol for that number? So there, there has been a struggle. So, I mean, you can imagine, suppose you wanted to write, say, 200. So if you wanted to do it by just adding one, two, three, four, it would be kind of going on forever. So the best way would be to say that let us have a place system. So we'd say, okay, to indicate the number 200, which is a large number, let us say that the unit amount is zero. Let us say that tens are zero and the hundreds are two. So 200 becomes 200. Zero, zero. So it's a very important kind of innovation by humanity to try and grapple with large numbers. So this is one aspect. And that I'm suggesting very strongly came out of India. And the first person perhaps who did was Brahmagupta in the 7th century. So this is how it started. And the Hindu traders were using this system for their calculations. So the Arab visitors, we had a lot of Arabs who used to come and trade with India in 7th century. So they picked up this numbering system and, of course, used it for their own calculations. So it became a very important tool for trading. And then with the Arab traders, he went into the Middle East and went into the European civilization, etc. But apart from the place system, there's something much more dramatic about the number zero. This is philosophically highly charged up and very important aspect to explore. The idea of modern cosmology, which is in agreement with the esoteric Hindu tradition, is... We all started without any beginning or without anything. It's a spontaneous creation. And here is this idea that from nothingness, something springs up. And this idea is at the foundation of modern cosmology and the Big Bang Theory. Because it doesn't say there is a beginning and then you have a beginning of time. Because time begins, space begins. So they unfold. So from nothingness, something appears. You see, there are two kinds of Hindu faith. There's a kind of very highly narrative-oriented, personality-oriented, colorful storytelling Hindu faith. And there is a more esoteric, much more philosophically-oriented Hindu tradition, which relates very closely with this idea of spontaneous creation without a god sitting in the heaven. So one of the most ancient texts we have, the scripture of authority called the Nasadiya Sukta, says something beautiful. It says, in the beginning, you can't say there was something or there was nothing. Neither something nor nothing. 
This is the beautiful way the verse starts. And the, it ends in a very dramatic manner saying, it is very likely that God came afterwards. This is the right to the heart of Hindu tradition. You see, modern cosmology says the following, and in fact it's a well-tried and tested theory, that space and time unfold and stretch themselves. This is called the Big Bang Theory. There's no actually physical bang. It basically, space and time unfold, and in the process comes about this manifested universe that we you know, encounter in front of us. All the galaxies, everything pops out from nothingness. But a question still arose. Who pressed the button? What caused the Big Bang? This is a very serious question. And of course, many theologians will like to kind of latch on to this thing. Of course, we agree with Big Bang now, but surely there must be some chap called God who pressed the button saying, come on, let's get started. Because everything we see, everything we encounter seems to have a cause. So the creation itself must surely have a cause. This is a kind of argument proposed by many theologians. What is the Hindu take? You'll be surprised. The Hindu take is very interesting. He says... Not two things, but three things unfold for creation to come into being. From the unmanifested, means from nothing else, something that is manifest as something, pops out when three things unfold. So, Mr. Lakhani, what three things? These are the Sanskrit terms. So I'm not making anything up. They say, Desh, Kar, Nimit. Desh means space. Kar means time. And Nimit means causation. So they are saying universe comes into being when three things unfold, not only space and time, like modern cosmology, but the concept of causation, things are linked with each other through cause and effect. That too pops up when creation comes into being. So if you ask Stephen Hawking, what was there before Big Bang, Mr. Hawking? They will say, don't ask the question, there was no time, so you can't say what was before the Big Bang, so the question is irrelevant. The Hindu will say the same thing. What caused the Big Bang, you may ask him. It's very easy. Causation comes with the Big Bang, so don't say who caused the Big Bang. This is, if you like, the very esoteric ideas at the heart of Hindu tradition, which sit well with modern cosmology. And you can hear this program again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk. And that's a piece by Jay Lakani called The Invention of Zero in the Faith by Numbers series produced by our friends at Things Unseen. Our thanks to Christine Pommert and her wonderful staff at Things Unseen for their fine work. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop and from Things Unseen over in the UK. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt and Colleen Pellisier did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. Taylor Gould is our seminary intern. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you follow us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.